You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed in Markham, in Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan, in Stouffville, in Woodbridge, in Unionville. You're listening to 1059 The Region. I'm station manager Tina Cortez, and this is The Feed. We are York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues and events that matter to all of us who live and work here. On the show, with the Leafs out of the playoffs, we decided to reassign Jim Lang to the political beat. Well, we're just kidding, but he does catch up with local MP Francesco Sorbara and Willowdale MPP Stan Cho. Those conversations are coming up. We also learn more about Israeli Independence Day, and also ahead, Hospice Vaughn gears up for their fundraising hike. But we begin with health news, and the confirmed cases of measles in York Region have many on edge. Afwaba with what you need to know. Well, there has been a confirmed case of travel-related measles in York Region, and uh, in order to help uh, make sure that it is contained, uh, York Region has put out, of course, an update, uh, giving um, residents some tips um, in terms of how to prevent catching the virus, as well as some um, ways to sort of um, be on the lookout in case they think they might be infected with the virus. But joining me to chat today to give us a general overview of what measles is actually about and why it is such a, a, a troublesome type of virus. Joining me to chat today is Dr. Jaya Nadaraja, who is an infectious disease physician at Markham Stouffville Hospital. Dr. Jaya, how are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for coming on and, of course, giving us now a few tips about uh, what the virus is all about. So, of course, just uh, give us a general overview of what measles is. So, measles is a fairly severe viral illness and, for the most part, has been eliminated from the majority of our developing countries. And in Canada, has been technically eliminated for several years. Um, it's a highly contagious disease, and it's probably the most contagious virus disease um, to date that we have on the planet. And it can give a very specific type of symptomatology in the majority of patients. But because we haven't seen it in, in several years, a lot of people actually can't recognize it. And in general, it's a self-limited illness. The majority of patients recover from it well, but we have some very serious complications which is the main reason why we have been so actively vaccinating against measles. And we have a very effective vaccine, which is why we've been able to eliminate it from the Americas for several years now. Okay. And so now that there is a confirmed case of measles in the region, um, why have there, why has there been uh, that sort of update and sort of um, um, just that awareness that has been put out to residents? What makes this um, a bit tricky and a bit concerning um, that residents should be aware that this is actually in the region? So it's concerning because we don't see measles often enough. And it's concerning because it is reflective of the Um, decreasing in the amount of vaccination that in general has been happening in our, in, in the American and North American community. And so it is concerning also because there are people who are not immune to measles and generally uh, children under the age of 12 months are not immune to measles because they haven't had the vaccination yet. And the population that hasn't had two doses of the measles vaccine can have lower uh, immunity to measles. And there is a small proportion of that uh, in, in Canada. And so, and for people who are not able to get the measles vaccine for other reasons, they're also not immune. So for the concern of those people is why we've been very vocal about putting out all of these alerts. And anytime we see a measles case, we put the alert out. And that way, the general community knows that we've had a measles case, but also the healthcare community knows that if they have patients that come in with anything that's suspicious, that we immediately act on it. Who is most um, vulnerable in terms of contracting measles? So the most vulnerable currently would be any child under the age of 12 months, because in general, they do not get uh, the MMR vaccine until after they're a year old uh, across Canada. So they would be absolutely the most vulnerable of our, of, our, of our population. And then the second most vulnerable would be um, adults who have not had the second measles vaccine. And in general, in Canada, the second measles vaccine uh, dose was only coming into effect after the late 1990s. 
So, and at that point, it would be in your regular. So if you were older than that, a child in the late 1990s, then you may not have had your second dose of vaccine. So they're more vulnerable as well. And then the third uh, part of the population are people who are uh, not allowed to have the measles vaccine. And those are people who have significant issues with their immune system and they haven't been allowed to have it or they've had an allergic reaction to the vaccine. And so they would also have low levels of immunity. So those are the three groups that would be fairly high risk for acquiring measles. What are some of the signs then of measles that residents should be on the lookout for? So the signs when they start are very general signs. So fever, feeling very tired, and loss of appetite. And then what happens after is you start getting more of some very specific things that are a little bit out of the ordinary to a regular virus. You get a very um, redness of your eyes. We call it conjunctivitis, where the outer layer of your eye gets very red and inflamed. You can have runny nose and cough as well. And in some people, they can get these little white spots in their mouth. That is very classic for measles. And then the other classic sign for measles is usually about two or four days after you have your fever and the kind of cough, colds, and eye inflammation symptoms, you get a very typical rash. And it tends to start in your face and kind of spreads in a circular pattern down the rest of your body. And it's a very red and angry rash. It's not, it's not itchy. Um, and so if you start seeing anything like that, and maybe someone who's been in these areas where there have been measles exposure, so not just in York region, but there are several cases in British Columbia and um, Quebec and other parts of Canada, but also if you've traveled somewhere where measles is still fairly prevalent, then that, would, that is when you should start being concerned. So again, it's not, there, there are it, symptoms that can be just any other virus too. So fever, feeling unwell and a rash comes with many viruses, but there are some typical things that come with measles, which is where your eyes get inflamed at the beginning and then the rash spreads from the head down to the toes, kind of in a circular pattern. So then what does one do? Because uh, it seems like the symptoms at first almost look identical to that of a maybe a flu or a fever before they realize then yeah. they have the rashes and, and whatnot that comes forth. So then um, does someone just immediately go into um, a healthcare facility once they start seeing those sort of symptoms of just having a flu or a fever? Or do they wait it out until they actually see the rash appearing? Yeah, I would wait it out. If you just have a fever and you're feeling unwell, I would wait it out to see if you get that type of a typical rash. But at the same time, I would still not run to a healthcare facility if you have a rash. Right now, it's more if you have been in certain areas where you really are at risk to have been exposed to a case of measles. It's still completely rare enough that not every fever and rash would be something we would ever consider to be measles. But there's been some specific areas that York Region has sent out to say if you've been here in this period of time, then you should be concerned and then contact your healthcare provider. But if you haven't been to those areas and you're getting a fever and a rash outside of it and you're well, then you would treat it as any other fever and rash. If you have concerns and you're still not sure, I would suggest that you first call your healthcare provider and say, this is something I'm concerned about and discuss it first with them before you show up to any healthcare facility. Because if there is a very small chance even that it is an evil that is so highly contagious, that we're trying to discourage anyone from running to a healthcare facility at the first signs of a fever. Okay, so thank you so much, doctor, for clearing that up, that in no case problem. they contracted measles, um, it's not the best idea to maybe go to the emergency or a healthcare facility first. Rather, they should call first, talk about it, or maybe inform them that they are coming so that they can put in the uh, necessary precautions, correct? Absolutely. So if you're well enough, then obviously, if you're, if you're very sick, it's a different story. But if you're well enough and you're concerned, I absolutely agree to call a healthcare provider first. And then if there is a concern and you need to be seen, then at least they can put in the precautions when you come in so you're able to see them right away in a more um, controlled setting. Okay. And is measles only um, treated through vaccinations or is there other ways that measles can be treated? So in terms of prevention, that's, that's how you would use a vaccination. Okay. It, there is a role for a vaccination if you've been exposed for certain uh, people to get a vaccination to limit the, ch the, the chance of you getting measles after you're exposed. And that is a very, very small amount of people that would qualify for that. In terms of actual treatment, once you have measles, 
is what we call supportive care. So we treat your fever, we give you fluids, and we just monitor you. There is no actual pill for measles. In rare situations, there is an antiviral medication that we may use, but it's really not meant to be a treatment for measles. So it's all like any other viral infection, no antibiotics, just fluids and rest and supportive care if you do get diagnosed with measles. And how long does it take before measles uh, uh, sort of passes through one system? So in general, if you are exposed to someone with active measles, it can take anywhere from 6 to 21 days for you to even get your first symptom. And then once you've had your first symptom, in general, it's about four to six days after you've passed through every phase of the illness and then your rash starts to fade. So you can be sick for usually an average of four to six days. Okay. All right. So that's good information to know then. So then um, what about those who are traveling? Because in this case, for the the confirmed case in York region, it was um, a travel-related confirmed case of measles. How can people protect themselves from measles when they are going out of the country? So what I would suggest is, A, you know, ensure that your vaccination status is up to date and speak to your your healthcare provider about whether you need to get your second dose of your MMR vaccine. And in young children below the age of four to seven, depending on which province you're in, there are some uh, situations where you can get your second dose a bit earlier than it is on your provincial schedule. So those are things you can try to do before you travel to somewhere. And secondly, if you're somebody who cannot get the vaccination for a number of reasons or you're not immune, then the suggestion really is to avoid areas where there has been either outbreaks or significant amount of measles cases. And even in Canada, there's some areas uh, where there's currently ongoing measles cases, such as in areas of British Columbia, where you may want to look into it before you travel if you're not an immune person. If you're immune to measles, there is no problems with traveling. The vaccine is very effective. Or if you have natural immunity from having had measles before, then you don't have to worry about, uh, about traveling. Okay, perfect. And and then finally, uh, where can people get more information on measles? Maybe if they're concerned or they're about to head out of the country and they just want to be more inf- uh, well informed. Um, so the best places online would be the Public Health Agency of Canada. They can just go and Google this and Google Public Health Agency of Canada and measles. Or you can have Public Health Ontario and measles. And you can even Google York Region and measles and you'll get lots of good websites. I would suggest doing, um, looking through the official public health website for the country and the province. And the other place, if you have further questions, because you may have um, personal health care questions based on your level of immunity or your vaccination status, is to speak to your family physician or health care provider who mainly gives you your, um, your uh, treatments. Perfect. Dr. Jaya, thank you so much for, um, you know what, informing us about measles and, of course, uh, just giving us all of the good information that we need. But, of course, also uh, letting us know and reminding us just to get vaccinated if you haven't and check our immunization records as prevention is always the best cure. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. We turn our attention next to The Political Beat and Jim Lang's conversation with a local MP from Vaughan Woodbridge. Over the course of the time here at 105.9 The Region, we have had the opportunity and the privilege to get to know a lot of interesting people, not the least of which are uh, the men and women who give of themselves to give back to the community in service to the country uh, through members of parliament, provincial parliament, municipal government, and thrilled to be speaking with the member of parliament for Woodbridge and Vaughan, Francesco Sobera. Francesco, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you, and good morning to you and to your listeners. Well, it's, it's a real pleasure. Um, you have such a, a, a varied resume. Before we get deep into some of the things we want to talk about, how does a kid that went to Simon Fraser end up doing such good work and becoming such a part of the Vaughn Woodbridge community as a member of parliament? Well, <laughs> you just gave me a recollection of, you know, I attended Simon Fraser University to my undergrad, came out here, uh, moved out here to do graduate school and uh, at the University of Toronto. I was always a Leafs fan, even growing up in Northern British Columbia. Oh. I'm sorry to say about No, give me the rock right there. Thank you, Francesco. <laughs> and uh, as a big Leafs fan, I still remember when Nikolai Borachevsky scored the yes. goal against Detroit. Was it, yes. Yes, and, it was, uh, 93. It was, it was 93, and I think that was still one of my highlights. 
uh, of a a Leafs fan. And uh, you know what? I always loved Toronto. uh, And here I am, fast forward, some time in New York City, back to Toronto, now married, two uh, lovely kids here in the beautiful city of Vaughan. And now I get to serve uh, as a big privilege uh, as the the member of parliament here. Uh, Going from the, the business world, which you were a part of for a long time, to public service, you're dealing with things you probably never even thought of. In your time as a member of parliament, Francesco, or through your office in Ottawa and your office here in your home writing, you must get some some questions and queries that probably I'm like, wow, I never even thought about that. We, I think we've done over 12 or 1,300 cases in our office in the wow. last three and a half years. Everything from your simple passport to an immigration or taxation issue with CRA. And, and Jim, uh, you know, you have families out there struggling with people with dementia. Alzheimer's. Uh, you have people who need care at home for home care and they call. You need people that are stuck overseas and you got a system to come back to Canada for, for various reasons. Um, so I would have never thought the breadth of issues that I would lo- would have looked at would have been would have been such. I'm still amazed sometimes. I'm like, I can help there and I do. We try to help our best. That's our job. And But it's just a plethora of issues if, if I can use that word. Oh, no, morning. absolutely. I like that. Uh, speaking with Francesco Sobera, the member of parliament for Vaughn Woodbridge and I know you're a big part of Hospice Vaughn. You uh, presented a check for $25,000. I mean, for you just alluded to it, that the challenge, not just in Vaughn and Woodbridge, but across Canada, dealing with people with health issues, the, the, the aging population, that, that goes a long way, that money. Yeah. Oh, no, it does. And this is, you know, I like to I like to be almost like a nonpartisan MP and say, you know, the programs that are in place by the federal government, like the New Horizons for Seniors Program, which is the money, uh, a portion of the money we gave to Hospice Vaughn, uh, are programs that just benefit everyone. And, uh, you know, we've come up with a national dementia strategy. Uh, again, you know, it's federal leadership. The service provider is the province, uh, but we need to be there at the table. And and those are the type of issues that impact people on a daily basis. You talk about your bread and butter issues, taking care of, of your parents, your grandparents. Those are bread and butter issues faced by families. I know our family, we, we're we a very close family, both my from my wife's side of the family, my side of the family. But we also know we have limitations. As much as we would like to help, there's certain things we can't do depending on the, the situation of the elderly. And that's why it's so important to have these facilities. As much as people... People say, oh, I want to take care of my grandfather, my aunt. If you can't, you can't. So what can the federal government do to make sure there's enough facilities for everybody? Because it does seem to be a real problem for people. Yeah. Well, we've provided a big, uh, I call it a big chunk of change, a, a big pot for the provinces on home care to provide mm-hmm. extra dollars for you know, personal support workers, uh, people going into. Because we know we want to keep our parents home as long as possible. Yeah, of course. It's understandable. And, and I hear that all the time. And and I think with day running day programs, whether it's an Alzheimer's dementia program for seniors here in Vaughan, uh, that's run out of the uh, a place called the Calabrian Benevolent Association, the day program at Hospice Vaughan, whether it's uh, providing funding for Canada summer jobs for a number of uh, places across uh, across Vaughan, we're here to we're here to assist to the best of our ability. I mean, you touched upon the different things you do within your office, Francesco. I mean, Vaughan has evolved so much in the last ten or fifteen. 15 years. Uh, at one time, people thought of it as the hub for the Italian-Canadian community in the province, but there's so much more to that. There, there, oh. There's so much more that you have to deal with in the Vaughan Woodbridge area that just didn't exist a decade ago. No, it's very multicultural. I think the, the mayor likes to say, you speak over 105 language, languages, but I'm amazed at the diversity. But I'm also amazed, I think, I always say I'm blessed because I have one of these writings that is just very entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. Uh, very well established. People work very hard. They save, creating a better future for their families. Uh, and I'm blessed to be part of that. Uh, and there's some challenges for sure, but we have a lot of good things happening. And the subway's opened up. We'll have a hospital uh, in, in about a year or two. Uh, but a ton of infrastructure money going into the city and just an entrepreneur spirit. Like the biggest challenge that when I go meet with employers, they tell me is they can't find enough people to work. That's still a problem, right? So, yeah, up, up in York region, yes, most wow. definitely. Most definitely, that's still, that's still an issue people highlight. Uh, you talk about the challenges of businesses, small, medium, and large. Uh, the cost of utilities, electricity, yes. and fuel is obviously one of them. Uh, now, I am, or, or my wife and I are raising two teenage daughters. Our oldest is an ardent environmentalist, and anything to help the environment and climate change, she is all over me. But, er, I, Dad, turn the light off. Dad, stop running the water when you brush your teeth. <laughs> I, and I get that. And, yes. But, I mean, I see a story that people in Vancouver are spending $1.70 for a liter of gas. That's tough for the average family. Is there a way to balance the the need to help the climate and help people's day-to-day pocketbook? Well, the plan that we put forward is is a plan that, you know, makes life uh, more affordable 
for eight out of 10 families in Canada. You know, we rebate everything. We put a price on pollution. Uh, we rebate everything back to consumers, to families, and that will offset any sort of any increased costs. And what I've told people, I get it. You know, uh, if you fuel up and it's an extra four cents, say $2.40 on a 60 liter tank, that's a loaf of bread. Right. Right. And to a lot of people, a loaf of bread is a loaf of bread. And I get that. And, I, and that's the way I grew up with my, the values I have. So what I say is like, yes, you'll have that increased cost on that side, but you'll be rebated the funds that go to your family, which will offset that. And I, and I think that is a smart environmental policy. Innovation will drive uh, the policies for climate change and proper, and proper uh, what we call putting a price on pollution as well. But innovation, electric vehicles, uh, industries, retrofits for houses uh, and for commercial buildings, that'll, that'll drive it. Taking coal out of the environment, which mm -hmm. we've done here in Ontario and we'll do across Canada, those are real solutions. And it's, you know, it's different buckets, as I call them. There's, di there's different things targeted for, for, to reduce uh, greenhouse gas uh, emissions and, and to fight climate change. And we need to. We only have one planet. There's no plan B. There's no planet B. Uh, there's only one. There's only A. And Canada needs to be a leader of that. No matter how big or small we are as a country, how many people live here or not, uh, we need to be a leader there. Uh, part of being a member of parliament, Francesco, is you, I mean, you're part of the dynamic of the party I mean, between the prime minister, his first ministers. There is drama within the PMO's office, and sometimes you have to deal with it. How do you um, reconcile something like Jane Philpott, who I know is so so respected within the party with a lot of members of the Liberal Party and what happened to her, and also doing your job at the same time? Um you know, this has been been a, a difficult period, obviously, mm -hmm. and uh, and there's been a disagreement between, you know, the prime minister's office and these two these two former uh, former ministers, uh, and I'm you know and I've been friends with Jane, and what I'll say this is as an MP, and I have respect for all my colleagues across all aisles, all 338 of us, uh, and it's a very difficult job. There's not there's no uh, job, even when I worked on Wall Street, this is more onerous than that in terms of hours, in terms of pressure, uh, absolutely. Um, I will say I'm here to serve my constituents. If I feel at any point in time that I disagree with any of the policies that our government puts forward, I will speak up in national caucus and say I disagree, and I will make my opinion known. And and you know, and it goes directly to the prime minister. And I feel comfortable doing that. Uh, that's always been my bonus, uh, and and that's the best way I can serve my. Um, my residents, I promised my residents that I would be the voice for them in Ottawa. And after three and a half years, that's what I've, I've tried to deliver is to express their concerns and obviously agreements and disagreements. You know, Francesco, you touched upon it. And I don't think sometimes the average Canadian realizes that, you know, especially as you go higher up into the cabinet to the prime minister level, it becomes a 24-7 job. It's, it's not easy. In, in today's world, uh, as my staff would, would would tell you, we are accessible all the time. Um, I get emails or texts or Facebook messages or Instagram from residents, from constituents all the time, weekends, evenings. And you have to deal with it. And you have to do, and people, uh, there's an expectation these days that you're available all the time. And it's difficult to balance everything. I try my best. Uh, I try to meet with as many constituents as I can. I'm in Ottawa, you know, three quarters of the, uh, sorry, a quarter of the year or a little bit more. Uh, and I have a family. So it, it's definitely a balance. Uh, it's a balancing act. But at the same time, I love what I do. It is a privilege. Uh, and I'm very proud to represent this riding. Um, and we, you know, you got to work hard. You must have a, a incredible faith in your staff because there are times, Francesco, your staff have to deal with things because you can't be there 24 seven. I think I have the best staff out of any MP. See, now that's see, that's what I like to hear. No, no, in all seriousness, you look like you genuinely love what you're doing. Is this is this something you would like to keep doing as long as the, the voters will have you back? Absolutely. I, I wanted to be in a member of parliament when I was 15 years old, growing really? up in Northern British Columbia. And I hosted Jean Chrétien before he became leader of the Liberal Party of Canada in 1989. Uh, and fast forward, I, you know, I left the private sector after 23 years of Bay Street and Wall Street and a few other things to do this job. And the voters placed their trust in me. I am running a Again, as as the liberal candidate for Vaughan Woodbridge, and and I hope to earn uh, that trust again uh, from the voters. For for someone who dreamt of that as a teenager, how cool is it to sit in the House of Commons the first time as a sitting MP? Uh, <laughs> there are not many uh, not many better uh, better feelings I've ever had in my life. I think my kids, uh, being a father, is the first one. Yeah, uh, and then you know this is probably a close second or third. For yeah, sure. absolutely. Francesco, I've always wanted to have a good conversation with you. It's, it's as good as I expected. Thank you so much and continue oh, success. Pleasure, Jim. Thank you.
This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm station manager Tina Cortez. Remember, if you missed any part of our show, head over to 1059theregion.com for a replay. Over to Queen's Park next and a look inside provincial politics. We're back in the feed and thrilled to be speaking to someone who's uh, making a difference both in the, his community and in the province, a member of provincial parliament for Willowdale, Stan Cho. Stan, how are you? I'm wonderful, Jim. Thanks for having me today. It's a pleasure. Uh, so much going on. There's a new provincial government and a new way of doing things, and a big part of that is uh, Vic Fideli's most recent budget. Uh, there's a lot to digest here, and we're still trying to make sense of it all. Uh, what strategy, strategy specifically does the government plan on using to help reduce the deficit, which is obviously one of their big goals coming into power? Yeah, it certainly is uh, one of our big goals, and and the deficit was out of control when we when we took uh, office 315 odd days ago. And uh, really, the challenge here is to get that structural deficit back to a surplus, which is going to happen after five years, and chip away at this ridiculously massive debt in Ontario, which is now over a third of a trillion dollars. It's so bad, Jim that the fourth largest expenditure of Queen's Park is interest on that debt. And, of course, that is, yeah, we spend more on interest payments than we do for training colleges and universities or transportation. And that's money that should be going towards health care, should be going towards education and improving infrastructure. We're going to get it under control in five years. And, Stan, I think I can speak for a lot of my circle of friends that we like to feel like we're fairly well-informed, but... It, it almost seems like it got away from us as, as citizens in the province with the debt ballooning like this. How, how did it sort of just escape everyone's mindset that the, the, the deficit was like a runaway train to the point where it is now? You know, that is such a good point, Jim. It did get away from us, and, and we're all to blame for that, every single one of us, uh, from politicians right down to the everyday average single mom working three jobs to make ends meet. You know, we need that transparency and accountability back into government. We can't just listen to the sound bites on the news and think this is a good news story. We all need to dig a little bit deeper and realize that spending money, and money thrown at an issue or a problem should not be the sole metric of success. And, you know, if, if that were true, if, if, if throwing money at a problem would be the measure of success, then past governments of all stripes would have already created a utopia here in Ontario, and that's certainly not the case. So not only do we need to spend uh, very carefully and remember that every dime is this blood, sweat, and tears of the hard-working people of this province, we need to change our systems of government. We need to modernize. We need to break down silos between ministries. We need to make sure that we're communicating with, the, with each other to have a people-focused uh, basis of approach to everything. Outcomes are everything, and we've got to make healthcare work for the patients. We've got to make education work for the students, and that's what we're going to do. Speaking with Stan Cho, the member of Provincial Parliament for Willowdale, and, and Stan, I, my wife and I, we have teenage daughters. Our oldest is about to go to university, so the idea of the job market is really important to us because we want to make sure they have jobs when they enter the workforce. What kind of strategies can we do as an Ontario government to, to make sure those jobs will be there when they enter the workforce in the next five to seven years? Jim, I, th I think you'll agree with me when you say that, uh, you know, in the time your daughters have grown up, you've seen the world change drastically, have you yeah. not? Oh, <laughs> just, you know, technology has is, is really changed the way business works and, and the way the job market works. And, and you're, you're bang on. We're not preparing uh, the students of today for the jobs of today and for the jobs of tomorrow. And we've seen a lot of jobs uh, leave Ontario, 300,000 manufacturing in the last 15 years. We've seen, unfortunately, the Oshawa plant uh, shut down. And, and that's because haven't anticipated where the jobs are going to go tomorrow. So, you know, we're, we're making big positive changes in education. Uh, the education minister has been hard at work, and we're introducing financial literacy into the school system, because why should uh, students be learning about credit card debt through, well, credit card debt? They should be learning about debt and financing and these principles ahead of time before they're out in the workforce, and we should be preparing them for the jobs of tomorrow. We should be looking at coding, uh, solid uh, mathematics skills, getting back to the basics. Uh, of course, digital technologies is something that we should be training students on as well. And this is why it's not just about giving more money to the education system, which we have. It's also about modernizing the systems and, and the curriculum that they're learning from. Unfortunately, no matter who's in power and how good the budget is, there's always going to be critics out there. Stan, how, how do you deal with the critics? And, and keep focused on the prize ahead. Well, you know, I, I love that we're in a democracy, and, of course, uh, 
being in a democracy, you're not going to have everybody agree with you. But I think disagreement is a healthy part of our democratic process. And, you know, we need to consult with everybody, whether you agree with them or whether you don't. And we need to, most importantly, listen to the experts. And, and the experts have been telling us for a very long time that our education system has holes in it. It's a great education system, uh, but it, there's, there's metrics beyond just funding the education system. It's making sure that our students are passing uh, math. It's giving them the basics. And, and, and Jim, the other thing is, you know, when they graduate and they enter the job market, we also have a responsibility to make sure that they are entering a competitive economy where hard work can lead to that success. And that's not going to happen in a province that is burdened in debt, that is paying uh, interest payments at the fourth largest expenditure in the government budget. It's not going to happen when jobs are leaving Ontario. So it, we have to think forward. We have to think at the curriculum. And we have to make sure that these, these kids grow up in a world that is prosperous, just as it was for my parents when they moved to this country. Well, And that's what I wanted to get to, Stan. I, I, I love your personal story about where you came from, from uh, South Korean roots and a, a hardworking family. And a great photo on your uh, government website with the classical boat of a car and your family posing in front of it to being a varsity rugby player at U of T to real estate to a member of provincial parliament. It's been quite a ride for you, Stan. It sure has. And uh, nothing makes me happier to share that story of my family because it is the Canadian dream, Jim. It really is. And, you know, I, my dad uh, moved to this country in 1970 uh, from South Korea with, with 100 bucks in his pocket and nothing more than a dream. Wow. And he couldn't find a job. He, he couldn't speak English, so he, the only employment he could find was actually selling earthworms as fishing bait, and then from there he got a minimum wage job, he ended up uh, buying a convenience store with my, my mom. Those are my first memories, growing up in that store, doing my homework there, uh, watching them work their tails off seven days a week, but then my dad studied for his real estate license behind the counter, got successful in sales, opened a, an amazingly successful company, and, and the moral of that story for me, Jim, is that in Ontario, you, with hard work, you can go from selling earthworms to owning a successful business. And that is the philosophy that guides me. My parents always told me that the measure of their success is making sure that their kids had more than they had had. And I certainly know that I do today. And that without my parents, there's no way my path would have led to politics to be able to change the world. Now, how did you end up making the varsity rugby team at UT? That's, there's no lightweights making that team stand. <laughs> you know what? I got to tell you, uh, the body's not cooperating as much as it used to, but <laughs> rugby was my favorite sport to play. I'd say hockey and uh, basketball might have, or baseball might have been my uh, favorite ones to watch, but, you know, it's, um, I, I always believe that athletics is just as important uh, as uh, staying uh, mentally in shape, so it was uh, a lot of fun for me to play. Well, Stan, it's been a real pleasure to speak to you. I love your personal story. I love your attitude and uh, your commitment and passion to uh, good government in the province. Uh, Stan Show is a member of Provincial Parliament for Willowdale, and it was thrilled to have him on the feed. Stan, a real pleasure. Continue success in the future. Joining us next on the feed is Belinda Marchese, and she is the executive director of Hospice Vaughn. Belinda, thank you for being here. Thank you, Tina. It's wonderful to join you. Tell us a little bit about a hospice. What is it, and what kind of care does it provide? Thank you. It's um, really a very special thing, a hospice. It's about building community kindness and compassion where people who are f facing life-limiting illnesses and terminal conditions are well-supported, as well as supporting families and friends and caregivers within the local community. The hospice movement is very much like you would say a generational of families and community groups that get together when someone's in need. You know, if someone's birthing in life and joining the world, what supports them? And as people are facing their end of life, how does that same kind of concept continue? And hospices are all across the country and all across the world. And they look a little bit different. But here in Vaughan, we have a very special one that's really been started by a movement of volunteers and grassroots community leaders that just want to bring kindness and compassion. And here we are 24 years later and uh, on the brink of opening up a new residential hospice. And we're so proud. And what makes the hospice bond different and special, as you say? Well, it's, it comes from the community. It's the local citizens. It's the families. It's the friends. It's the caregivers. It's those neighbors. It's people checking up on people. How do you find kindness in your life when things change all of a sudden? You're not defined by your illness, but yet your illness defines you. And it's always that delicate balance. So people coming together, how can I support you? You don't want to be just focusing on the medical components 
intelligence, you, you have a heart, you have a soul, you have interests. So all of a sudden, people are bringing you food or they're helping you with your laundry and your groceries. Um, they're talking to you. Uh, maybe they're participating in hobbies or interests that you have. Um, maybe they're focusing on your spiritual needs or your psychosocial needs. But maybe they're also um, focusing on, you know, how to take care of, of, of the family around them that are 24-7 doing the caregiving. And it's all of that kind of compassion that kind of ties to core family values, I always say to people. You know, how do we take care of each other? And and what what does that look like? Because not everyone has a whole support system around them. Or even if they do, they might be just really tired and they need a bit of a helping hand. Why did you get involved? Well, I got involved for lots of things. I've been in the helping profession for a long, long time. Um, hospice has touched me in some very personal ways. And I never really thought about that because um, sometimes people think hospice is only about the elderly as they get older and maybe they face their end of life. But all of a sudden, you yourself as a person are facing your own experiences within your own life. Um, I've had a sibling, um, I've had two siblings actually that have uh, suffered from cancer and managed that fairly well. Um, but I had a sibling that died less than two years ago at quite at a mid-age and while he was still working and very productive in his family life. And that really teaches you a lot of different things because all of a sudden you're saying, oh my goodness, here we're going and something can happen in my life just like it can happen in your life and what do we all need? And being part of your family support systems and in your community is just so important and we don't know when our time is going to be and we really just have to be here to lift each other up and to help each other through the sometimes difficult times and making sure as people face their end of life that they really have the dignity and comfort that they so well deserve and the family needs to be held up through that period of time because it's very emotional. Well, thank you for sharing that personal story with us. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk specifically about Hospice Vaughn. Can you provide us a bit of an update? When is it expected to open? So we have been operating a community hospice program. So it's called Hospice at Home. We help people stay at home with our current programs and services. And we have on-site programs and services. And that happened 24 years ago, if you can imagine. And right now we're digging in the ground and we're resurrecting this incredible state-of-the-art building that will open sometime in early 2020. And what will happen there is we will extend our community programs and offerings, but we will also have a 10-bed residential hospice. And so that's where the community support will continue with people helping at home and then helping them access programs on site. And then for those that are at the tender stage at an end of life, if they're not able to stay at home or that's not their wish, then they'll have the full medical 24-7 support at a residential facility that will make sure that they and their family are well cared for and supported. And then both for our community clients and our residential clients that we support, we will continue to support their families and caregivers through their grief and through their loss and through their remembrance. It's very important that we honor our loved ones after they've left us and that we, we find our healing ways to move forward in, in life. Now, you mentioned that there are, you know, just a few beds, basically, at this new hospice that will open early next year. What about everybody else? Absolutely. Well, the goal is for people to stay and remain at home as long as possible. I think that's where most people want to be. They want to be surrounded by the things that are familiar with their loved ones and within their community. Uh, for those, we hope to be able to continue to support that with the partnerships in the community. And for those that are unable to, if they are in a long-term care or retirement or residential, that maybe some capacity building will happen at those environments to also help them stay at because that's their home at that point. And for those who need to be in a hospital, that they'll go there. But many people would rather have a supportive environment that's a little bit different than a hospital. It's so important what they do there, but it's a busy place and there's a lot of activities. And at, at a final resting place, they just want a home-like environment and a place. So, you know, people ask me that question all the time. We think about 200 to 200 and maybe 40 people will go through the residential hospice every year and then helping them at home with the community teams and with the hospice volunteers and professional staff and, and just trying to build that capacity in the local community because we're all getting a little older and unfortunately, many people are dealing with many severe illnesses. Some people are living longer with those illnesses, but they still need the support. So the methodology of hospice is, is about embracing the whole person and their family. So it's inclusive in that experience and helping people within their home 
or transferring them into a residential hospice at the end of their life. Now, ahead of next year's grand opening, you have a fundraiser coming up this month. We do. We have our hike for hospice at the end of May, Sunday, May the 26th. Many people say, what is that about? Well, first of all, it, it, it helps launch Hospice Palliative Care Week, and we have a flag-raising ceremony at the City of Vaughan at City Hall on Monday, May the 6th. We just found out today. The hike will be on the last Sunday in May, and that will raise awareness about hospice palliative care, about our local community programs at Hospice Vaughan, but it'll also help it raise money to fund our programs and services. Everything we do does not cost a family member or a person a penny. It's very important that we honor that experience because people are feeling so much stress. So we have to fundraise 88% of our programs and service costs through our uh, charitable community uh, for those that can give uh, of money, of time. It's really about uh, getting involved. So the Hike for Hospice uh, last year had over 350 people. We hope to have over 500 people. And then later in the year, we have another major gala event that also helps to raise important funds for the organization. So it's really important for us to encourage as much participation because this is for our community. So together, uh, we're stronger, and the hospice belongs to every person in Vaughan, and we really need the support. If our listeners want to get involved, whether it's um, to volunteer or to participate in the hike or in other ways, how can they connect? They have to give us a call or visit our website. Our phone number is 905-850-6266, and our website is hospicevon.com. Just reach out to us. We would love to talk to you and get you involved. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Tina. Our next stop on the feed takes us to the Schwartz-Riesman Center and our Jewish life educator, Dania Koplowitz. Dania, thank you for joining us. Hi, how are you? Can you tell us a little bit about your work as a Jewish life educator? Sure. Uh, in the JCC, we always call the, the Schwartz-Riesman Center or the SRC uh, a JCC, so a Jewish Community Center. Uh, I, I like to say that my tagline is I help put more J into the JCC. Um, so what I do is I work with all different departments and, and also sometimes different organizations to bring awareness to the community, to infuse content experiential opportunities to understand, learn about, and participate in different cultural and Jewish activities. Now, can you tell us a little bit about, you've got a couple of special days coming up. One is Israel Memorial Day, and the other one is Israeli Independence Day. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, the Israel Memorial Day, called Yom Hazikaron in Hebrew, uh, takes place on the 4th of ER in the Hebrew calendar, which this year happens to fall out on the evening of May 7th, uh, and follows the day of May 8th, and then um, sort of shifts into the Independence Day, which is called Yom Ha'atzma'ut, uh, and that is May 8th in the evening to May 9th during the day. And it really is uh, a time similar to, you know, our November 11th or uh, a different kinds of Memorial Days like that. We're really taking a moment and time to, to celebrate the individual and someone who gave up their life to fight for rights and things that they believe in. Yom HaZikaron starts off as a really somber day. It's really an opportunity to celebrate and honor the individual that sacrificed their lives, the different uh, struggles that they went through that led to Israel's Independence Day, Yom Ha'atzma'ut. So you really have this juxtaposition of emotions where you have the extreme sadness, the somber attitude, uh, the, the real, really down feeling, and then it switches immediately to this happy excitement and, and real festive feel, and it really allows for the individual to embrace the sadness and then have so much more of an elated happiness because you're pairing the two. Now, you compared this to uh, Remembrance Day. Are there moments of silence? Are there any sort of ceremonies, parades, uh, a military flyby, perhaps? Yes. Yeah, so actually, in Israel itself, it's celebrated by two sirens that go in the full uh, state. And uh, one happens in the evening to kick off 
to Memorial Day and what happens at 11 a.m. to to and and people literally it's amazing to see videos. People will get out of their cars in the middle of the highway and stand for a moment of silence. And here in our Jewish community center and in different venues around the city, the Israeli consulate always uh, puts on a, a memorial ceremony as well. Uh, there, they always do a, also a, a moment of silence, a siren to honor in that same respect. And is there a significance to ceasing all your actions during this time? Yes, it's really uh, to, to honor everything that has happened and, and all of the people that made the sacrifices. So you really take a pause and stop and think. And for those people that are, are directly connected, there are a lot of people that live in the city of Vaughan, in Toronto, uh, in the greater Toronto area that ha- know personally people that were affected. So for them, it gives them an extra moment to really think about those people and those families that are you know, living with those memories every day. If our listeners want more information, how can they connect? We have all of the information on our website at srcenter.ca. Um, but if you want to know everything that's going on in the community center itself, we have an amazing opportunity to participate in a program uh, for Yom HaZikaron, which will then lead into Yom Ha'atzma'ut, the Israel Independence Day of celebration and, and festivities and a lot of different cultural opportunities uh, on May 8th and May 9th. And again, you can check out srcenter.ca for all of that information. Danya, thank you for joining us once again on the feed. Thank you. That's our show for this week. If you missed any part of the feed, head over to our website, 1059theregion.com. I'm Tina Cortez. Thanks for listening. I'm Afwaba from the Region Newsroom, and here are the top stories in York Region. A Vaughan doctor has been arrested for allegedly sexually assaulting a female patient during a physical exam. 59-year-old Romeo Tan of Kleinberg faces one count of sexual assault on a 40-year-old patient in his Toronto office dating back to May of 2014. During the appointment, Tan allegedly touched the patient in a sexual or inappropriate manner and made inappropriate or sexual comments. Police first received a complaint about the incident from the alleged victim on December of last year and are asking anyone with information to contact them directly or call Crime Stoppers at 416-222-TIPS. Tis the season for black-legged ticks in York Region, and that has prompted public health officials to send out a warning about them. The little parasites can carry the bacteria that causes Lyme disease. Officials say people who are going into wooded or bushy areas should cover any exposed skin, use insect repellent, and search for ticks on your body and your pets after being outside. Lyme disease can cause a rash, headaches, fever, muscle, and joint aches. An energy company based in Woodbridge has been ordered to pay up immediately. Electra Utilities has to fork over $14 million to Solar Power Network. Electra terminated a financing agreement with the company for the construction of solar power projects in the province. It was determined that cancelling the deal was illegal. The utility company wanted to hold off paying the funds while it appealed that decision. But within the week, a judge came to the conclusion that waiting doesn't serve the interests of justice. The York Region District School Board has a new trustee. Nadim Madmood will represent Wards 1 and 2 in Vaughan. A by-election was called for April 25th after the sudden resignation in January of Anna DiBartolo. Thirteen candidates were vying for the job. About 43,000 were eligible to cast ballots at five locations earlier this week. Another brand of baby sleeping rockers is being recalled just two weeks after Fisher-Price recalled millions of a similar product. Kids 2 says it's recalling nearly 700,000 rocking sleepers sold at Walmart, Target and Toys R Us since 2012. Five infant deaths have been linked to the Kids 2 rockers over the past seven years, while more than 30 babies died in the Fisher-Price rock and play sleepers over a period of 10 years. We have posted the link to the recall on our Twitter feed at 105.9 The Region. From The Region Newsroom, I'm Afwa Ba. Police Beat on 105.9 The Region. This week in York Region, York Regional Police were talking about a robbery that took place at a convenience store. This incident happened back on Tuesday, April the 23rd. It was 11.42 p.m. when our officers were called to a convenience store located on Middlefield Road, which is just north of Steeles, um, for a report of a robbery. And in this case, a male suspect entered the store armed with a handgun. Uh, suspect made a demand for cash, and the employee did the right thing. They complied. 
suspect then fled the store on foot, and thankfully the victim in this case was not physically injured but traumatized, I'm sure. We're now looking for a suspect described as male black, 23 to 28 years old, Six foot three with a heavy build wearing, a, wearing black clothing and a black mask covering his face. If anyone has any information on this incident, please contact the York Regional Police Holdup Unit at 866-876-5423, extension 6631, or you can always report anything anonymously you'd like through Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS. There were two uh, failed remain collisions that we were talking about as well, and we released video of both these incidents. Now, the first one was a failed to remain collision that took place in Markham back on Monday, April the 22nd. It was 8.25 p.m. when we got called to the intersection of Young Street and Meadowview Avenue. Again, that's just north of Steeles. For a report of a failed to remain collision where two pedestrians had been struck, and when our officers got there, they found that a 44-year-old man was suffering from minor injuries and a 45-year-old woman was suffering from life-threatening injuries. I can tell you that uh, she is going to survive her injuries, but uh, she still remains in hospital. We did put out a picture of a white pickup truck uh, with a light bar up on top of it, a dual axle on the rear. We are looking for that vehicle, and anyone with any information, anyone who might have witnessed this collision, please contact the York Regional Police Major Collision Investigations Unit at 866-876-5423, extension 7704. And another failed remain collision, this one happened way back on January the 15th, uh, but we did just get some video that our investigators put out. This one involved uh, an ATV riding down a residential street that collided with a vehicle parked in a driveway, causing significant damage to that vehicle. Uh, the rider of the ATV and uh, some occupants in a nearby vehicle all got in and took off. So check out that video on our website at yrp.ca. Uh, if you have any information on who these people might be, please contact the 4 District Criminal Investigations Bureau at 866-876-5423, extension 7441. This weekend looks like it might be a rainy one. We are seeing some warnings about uh, flooding uh, that's taking place. Be very careful with the children and pets around uh, moving water. Please use caution. Uh, avoid any areas like uh, lakes or rivers uh, while we have this rain that's going on. And while you're driving in the rain, make sure be safe, full headlight system on, leave extra space and, and drive a little bit slower. And have a great weekend. York Regional Police, every weekend on 105.9 The Region. What's on 105.9 The Region? The grass is getting greener, there's buds on the trees, and spring flowers are popping up everywhere. So if you're itching to get into the garden, then head to the Nobleton Community Hall on Monday from 7.30 till 9.30 and find out everything you need to know about how to plant seeds and bulbs, divide and share garden perennials, and indoor plants. Thinking of buying a used car? Before you do, you might want to head to the Aurora Public Library on Tuesday from 7.30 till 8.30. Find out everything you need to know. In partnership with the Ontario Motor Vehicle Industry Council, come learn about consumer rights and protections as well as the dangers posted by curbsiders and much more. There's still time to book your reservation and turn a delicious dining experience into hope for someone living with AIDS. This Wednesday, select restaurants in York Region will be donating 25% of all sales to support the AIDS Committee of York Region. Check the What's On calendar for a listing of participating restaurants in York Region. Coming up on May 11th is the P-Flag Stand Proud Gala. With a roaring 20s theme, they'll be celebrating 25 years in York Region. Funds raised go right back to the LGBTQ2 community to provide vital support services for those in need. So on May 11th, come and stand proud, stand loud, and stand together with P-Flag at this exciting charity event. Check the What's On calendar for ticket information. On Sunday, May 26, Evergreen Hospice is inviting community members to join them to release a dove in honor of a loved one. Taking place at Amica Unionville on Main Street, registration will take place at 11 a.m. Then at noon, participants head outside for a short ceremony and the dove release in memory of loved ones. The event will be followed by a short walk through local trails, so come out and pass the care forward to others in need of bereavement support. For your guide to what's on in York Region, go to our website, 1059theregion.com. And if you have an event you want to share, email our community and sponsorship manager, Tina, at what's on at 1059theregion.com.